0: Hey, Ann Barner. Hey, Karen Avady. We need a promo. You know, like where we talk about what we do on our podcast. On our sugar-coated murder podcast? Like how we love to bake and talk about murder? That's what we need to talk about. There you go. I think we've talked about it. Y'all find us on all your favorite listening apps. Stay sweet. And don't murder. Because if you kill people, we will talk about you. The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. It is unimaginable that one of the Jervies would become involved in a murder. How does a well-rounded, affluent teenager transition from a country club tennis hotshot and local basketball star into a diabolical schemer contemplating the unthinkable act of taking someone's life? It boggles the mind. You never know what's happening in a person's house. People put on masks at time in public and take those off at home. From Click, Click, Click by Ann Varner and Karen Devaney. <laughs> Welcome, Murder Bookies, to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am your host, Jill, and this is Episode 77, A Hometown Murder, Part 1, on Click, 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 by Ann Varner and Karen Devaney. This podcast features the best true crime books out there, updating the author's true crime story and adding my own analysis. Frustratingly, many of us have no time to read, so I read for you. Trilogies, expect a new episode every two weeks on the book, and in between you can leave a five-star review, right? I want to wish everyone celebrating the Festival of Lights a very happy Hanukkah, which begins today at sunset. I am into my Christmas shopping, and if you want to make a murder bookie in your life happy, I have winter and Christmas designs out on my merch store on Spreadshop. It's not just t-shirts, but teddy bears, rabbits, baby clothes, hoodies, workout clothes, water bottles, Christmas ornaments. I got those for stocking stuffers. Don't tell on me. So look for sales happening on my Twitter or X, Facebook, and Instagram. Now a little bit about our authors, Karen and Anne. They are vibrant vagabonds. These ladies are sisters who grew up in your typical 1970s-1980s family home in Franklin, Virginia, which was founded in 1876 and established as a city in 1961. I'll bet you there were some avocado-colored appliances to be had where their mom taught them to love baking, with laughter ringing out as they mixed, beat, and kneaded. While attending college in Raleigh, Anne went to Peace and Karen went to Meredith Colleges. And this is when they really began to appreciate each other as sisters. Exactly, when you get away from them. Now, quote, they are both professionals by day and podcasters by night. Theirs is the Sugar Coated Murder podcast, and it combines their love of baking and true crime and ghoulish, dark, inappropriate humor. I love their show and I listen usually when I'm baking, right? So these ladies published Click 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 in 2022, coming in at 132 pages, and I can attest that they have their hearts in the right place, as this is the first book in a series that they call Say My Name, emphasizing the importance of remembering the victims. So you can see they are truly my soul sisters in true crime, and I encourage you to read the book. It is absolutely worthy. So I have a family favorite to share with you today. Peanut butter pie, which is hugely popular in Virginia, given all the peanuts that are grown down there. Now, this is a pie that should be prepared a day in advance or so of book club, but it isn't particularly difficult to make. So you have two bowls. In one, you're going to mix cream cheese, smooth peanut butter, powdered sugar. Then in the other, you whip heavy cream so it starts to get a little thick. You add a bit more powdered sugar and vanilla. Then you whip it until it gets to high peaks. Then you gently fold the cream cheese into the peanut butter mixture. Once that's done, you pour it into a pre-cooked pie crust. That's it. You pop it into the freezer for three hours or into the fridge for six. So it has to chill. That's why I said make it one day in advance. Now, before serving, you can drizzle melted chocolate and peanut butter over it and then garnish it with peanuts or chocolate chips or even Reese's Pieces. Utterly decadent, this is a simply amazing recipe, and it comes to us from Tessa Arias. Huge applause to her. So, we have our delicious dessert for book club today, but we still need our wine pairing. Well, it turns out that a deep, rich Pinot Noir works perfectly with this pie. Now, it's kind of a given that chocolate and red wine work really well in tandem together. Well, so does it with peanut butter, which kind of gives you almost peanut butter and jelly. Now, I'm a huge fan. (laughs) Now, you know that I am fond of naked wines, and their F. Stephen Millier Angel's Reserve Lodi Pinot Noir 2022, it is divine. Right with juicy strawberry and cherry on the nose, I tasted hints of cranberry and raspberry flavors too. With low tannins, it has none of that pesky acidic backwash that is complained about, you know, when you gulp it and then it has that eh. Doesn't have that. While many Pinot Noir are light, this one is more mid bodied, which was very pleasant on the palate. Smooth with a hint of pepper, I really, really like this wine, and together with the pie, it makes a wonderful combination for our book club. The recipe and information where to get our wine is found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com, where you find my show notes and sources and photographs, etc., etc., etc. So, bon appétit, murder bookies. Our case awaits. Here comes click, click, click. The story dives in immediately. You find yourself somewhat uncomfortably in the head of a killer, and it is far, far from the mindset of the serial killers I've covered previously. This killer isn't relishing in the memories or gloating. This one is in shock, panicked, desperate to sleep, to cease replaying the bloody events over and over in his mind. Closing his eyes, he sees the brilliant flash, the simultaneous bang of the muzzle of the gun, quote, followed by the odor of acrid smoke mixed with the sickening smell of gunpowder and flesh, end quote. He found no relief, his conscience pricking, poking him as the repetitive scene of the execution looped again and again. With a tortured groan, it came to him suddenly that with the state championship coming, he had to go to basketball practice. So, oh my God, I'm reading along and I realize to my horror that this guy is a kid. What the hell? Well, he just couldn't sleep. Could he actually smell that metallic scent of blood coming from the clothes he'd stuffed under his bed? He knew rigor mortis would be setting in as his mind returned to the flash. Bang! Followed by blood and chunks of flesh hurling. What is truly incomprehensible is this kid, this killer, he's in high school. He was raised by good people, Christians, who made positive contributions to their community and their town. He wanted to be a gangster, a badass, but now he was reliving the worst thing he could ever have done, like a rerun. Why? How had it happened in this lovely, family-friendly town, Franklin, Virginia, with a population of about 8,000? Franklin is a sleepy mill town. It was a wonderful place to raise a family where neighbors looked out for each other. It has its share of the mundane, sprinkled with the esoteric residents that we're all familiar with, reminiscent of offbeat characters in a quirky TV show. But the reality is, Life can be hard and unrelenting even in Mayburg. Franklin is the hometown of our authors, Ann Varner and Karen Devaney, who tell us about growing up there and how murder gradually became an interest for them early on. Some true stories. A man shot his estranged wife and her lover in a parking lot behind their father's drugstore when they were still in elementary school. The girls literally, quote, saw him toss the murder weapon into a drain along the sidewalk as they walked, end quote, with their mom, as they headed towards the bank with a deposit. This unfortunate event led to the first family discussion about murder. Well, any wonder that they grew up loving true crime. A witness, their mom, was truly afraid to testify at the trial. Now, fun fact, you cannot wear a disguise testifying in court unless there is a legitimate concern or fear of the witness being in danger, coupled with the assurance that the disguise will not unfairly bias the jury. Well, Mom wanted to wear one and wasn't permitted to, and she did testify at the trial, and the man was convicted. But not long afterward, a second murder came to the forefront in their lives. A local jewelry store owner and family friend, W. Jack Smith, was brutally murdered in July, 1978. A thief with a shotgun, Willie Lloyd Turner, came into his jewelry store, forcing Smith to put gold and gems and jewelry in the bag. While doing so, Jack Smith triggered the silent alarm. A police officer, Alan D. Bain Jr., was literally right outside the front door and he entered with Turner putting the shotgun to Bane's head, confiscating his service revolver. Nervous, Turner fired a shot into the wall. With Smith shifting, whereas Turner shot Smith in the head, grazing his scalp and bruising his brain. But this was not a fatal shot. Unconscious, Jack Smith slumped to the floor. Turner went to stand over him, firing into his chest twice, which killed Jack Smith. Now Officer Bain fought to get control of his weapon and finally subdued Willie Lloyd Turner. This thug decided to rob a jewelry shop with a cop standing outside the door. Genius level criminal, this guy. This terrible event made quite a grief-stricken stir in Franklin. Exhibiting their developing morbid curiosity, authors would invent reasons to go in the store to see the blood-stained carpet dark excitement churning and i think i might have done the same thing too and strike three yet another murder this one in 1982 crossed even closer to their orbit a 10th grade classmate of karen's left school one day and out of the blue killed a mail carrier working for the postal service a month Terry Brantley, went to deliver mail to the home of teenager Rodney Scott Sims when he abducted her, forcing himself into her vehicle. Her car then rammed a truck, whereas the witnesses in the truck saw Mrs. Brantley arguing with Sims. These were teenage boys Frank Turner, no relationship to Willie Turner, and Raylan Johnson. They were taking a break from doing some repairs at the Beulah Land AMZ Zion Church when they saw Rodney Sims slashing and stabbing the woman in the car. Stabbed over 20 times, Terry Brantley cried out for the boys to help her. And the boys did run to get help, but sadly, Terry Brantley succumbed to her injuries. Frank Turner actually recognized Rodney Sims as the killer because they played football together in school. After Bloodhounds tracked Sims from the murder scene to his home, Sheriff Ryland Brooks arrested him. He spent some time being evaluated in a psychiatric hospital and it was then determined he would be tried as an adult. The teens, Frank Turner and Raylan Johnson, would provide the most damaging testimony in the subsequent trial. Sims put up virtually no defense and was convicted in July 1983. Teresa Terry Yvonne Brickley Brantley was 24 years old when she was murdered. Terry had married the love of her life in November 1978, Mark Brantley, and they were wed just shy of four years when she was murdered. This was a terrible senseless act, but it came very close to our authors. Karen had been going to study geometry with him, with the killer but on a whim, canceled because it was too nice a day to be inside. This is the same day that Sims kidnapped and murdered. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Karen and Anne's parents explained what had happened, and life went on as usual. The next day, Karen went to school just like normal. How close might Karen have been to a terrible end was not discussed not until long after they were adults. And that is just so frightening because it's so random. And yet we know this happens all the times in murders that the innocent just gets swept away like that for no good reason. Now, in the summer of 1992, dad called his girls with more grim news. A few years earlier, a local teenage boy had gone missing, sending Franklin into a flurry. And now, Dad told them, it had been discovered he had been murdered and by one in their social circle. Utterly shocked, Anne and Karen read the newspaper and saw that the death was dark, heinous, and very much premeditated. No town is insulated from the realities of life, not even Franklin, Virginia. Too often in a true crime program, we see that the town is quaint, murder is rare until it happens. Part of the Virginia Tidewater area, Franklin is located on Blackwater River, making this a thriving agricultural area with cotton, peanuts, pigs, all represented. Back in the mid-19th century, the Camp family built a sawmill, which would grow into a multi-million dollar business a century later. Merging with a bag and paper company, Union Camp was formed. Our authors recall seeing snow falling on humid summer days, knowing it was pulp from the mill, with all the accompanying odors. Workers had free use of the car wash to spray this residue away. Well paid, camp employees were loyal and hard working, and with Union Camp thriving, the paper mill was later sold and downsized in more recent years but the camp family name was forever associated with generosity. Giving back to their community, the camps founded the local Paul D. Camp Community College where Karen and Ann took ballet lessons as kids. The James L. Camp Jr. YMCA held seasonal parties, hosted swimming lessons, and was a central fixture in the lives of Franklin's children and adults. A recollection from Karen and Anne They recall the time Senator John Warner came through town to visit with his then-wife, actress Elizabeth Taylor, Hollywood celebrity and Oscar winner. He might have been husband number five or six. I kind of lost count. Beautiful, smiling, she was a tad tipsy from the morning Bloody Marys, but clearly made a lasting impression. Karen and Anne absconded from church that day, sneaking off to the Dairy Queen instead which of course was noticed as everyone in Franklin knew everybody else in Franklin. And this was especially true for the daughters of the local pharmacist, and the sisters were caught for every transgression that they committed. Yet everyone trusted everyone else, looked out for everyone else, gathering to gossip at the Dairy Queen or the local tavern, Fred's. They wrote, quote, The town has changed since we lived there, and we don't get back there as often as we'd like. We can say one thing, you can take the girl out of Franklin, Virginia, but you will never take the Franklin, Virginia out of these girls, end quote. Well, at this point in our story, we learned the name Mike, still accessing the killer's shocked, jumbled thoughts. Now driving his car, he perceived it to be transparent, the blood in the trunk visible to everyone he passed. Out, damn spot. So much blood, just so much blood. Mike hadn't expected this much, oozing from around the tarp. He feared a tsunami of blood would crash into his back seat if he braked too hard. I'm now picturing the elevator scene from The Shining, with the blood gushing through the doors of the lobby, right? Mike regretted offering his car to transport the body. I hope he would regret a few other things, too. A Christmas gift from his mom, his car was the first new one since his dad's death. He despised it, knowing it was nothing but a bribe, trying to make up for the family concealing his father's terminal illness from him until it was too late. Mike had been robbed of precious time with his dad. He now decided to sully the bribe with a corpse in the trunk. It was less than satisfying that his family would never know about it, but Mike knew it would really crush them if they did. Making a turn, he hit the blinker, the click, click, click noise sounding eerily like the gun. He had to quiet his mind, breathe, and act like nothing had happened. Going inside his home, he went upstairs as if all were normal. Oh, thank God Mom wasn't home. He realized the mud he thought was stuck to his pants was actually flecks of spongy brain, and flicking them off, he ran to wash his hands. He found chunks of brain in his hair and stuck to his shirt, too. Attempting to wash it off only spread the blood stain, making a mess, and this was taking far too long. Mike had a schedule to keep. Stuffing his clothes under his bed, he left and got back in his car, like it was a normal Friday night. Normal. Normal. Alright, now he needed to be seen to establish an alibi. Part of him wanted to drive to the police station immediately and tell them about the murder. But if he confessed, he'd drag his partner into this mess too. Newsflash, Mike, your partner is already in this mess. Arriving at the teenager's secret watering hall, where they'd all drink ill-gotten liquor, some intoxicated girls were already hanging out, and Mike joined them giggling and fitting right in. No one noticed anything off. Alibi established. Anne and Karen knew Mike Derby, first encountering him at Cypress Cove Country Club. Both their families patronized the club. Among other activities, the sisters spent hours watching Mike play tennis and he was good. They didn't socialize with him much because they were closer to his brother's age. The five Jervy children attended public school, where Ann and Karen attended a private one. Occasionally, they'd see Mike in the newspapers having won some basketball game. An affluent family, the Jervys were always in the newspaper. Louis Packy Jervy, Mike's dad, worked for the local insurance company, handling Karen and Ann's dad's insurance for the drugstore. Mr. Jervy was a warm, caring man which has to make one question, how on earth does a well-rounded guy like Mike go from a high school champion athlete to a calculating murderer? It is just baffling, but here we go. Mike Derby was the youngest of five children. Unlike many that we have read about, neither Mike nor his siblings suffered from abuse or neglect. He was supported, encouraged, and respected in the Jervy home. Paggy Jervie was honored among the citizens in Franklin, a bigger than life kind of guy. Mike's brothers followed in their dad's footsteps, were successful and praised for their accomplishment. Never a troublemaker or a bully, Mike's rebellious streak was kept to himself, internally rolling thoughts around in his head. A successful athlete, Mike understood the competitive nature of sports. However, minor resentments began to take root in his thinking. All right, for example, part of a band. One night, Mike was horrified when his bandmates toilet paper his yard as a joke, leaving Mike feeling hurt and betrayed. This silly clowning proved to be an important turning point as Mike began to withdraw from his longtime circle of friends. Instead, he opted to hang out with Fred Green. The contented, happy Jervy life, however, took a tragic turn when Packy Jervy began to have relentless chronic pain. Checked into the local hospital, the usual battery of tests were run by his doctors, but a month later they still had no answers. With nothing else to do, Packy was discharged, the pain not ebbing. Mike's mother, Anne, and Packy chose to check him into Duke Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. Mike remembers his parents leaving for North Carolina, hoping to find answers, and then his brother telling them they all had to get down to Duke because Dad was critically ill. Louis Pascal Jervy died on September 22, 1988, at age 54. Devastated, Mike twisted his grief and anger at losing his father so unexpectedly at his family he knew his mother and brothers had conspired to keep his father's illness from him, lying for weeks, furious like he'd been robbed of precious time with his dad because his mother assumed he was too young to handle the truth. With these conspiratorial thoughts, quote, suddenly his rebellion cracked open, flooding every bit of his heart and mind, turning him to pure hatred, end quote. Mike quit church, stopped studying, and turned from a respectful, good son to utterly loathing his mother. Where once the basement had been a happy game room for the boys to hang out with friends, now Mike locked the door, retreating into the dark, played loud music brooding. With only he and his mom living at home, he was harsh, cruel even, limiting his interactions with her which is just what the grieving widow needs to be dealing with. The only person Mike could count on was Fred Green. Like Mike, Fred was angry at the world. It was cruel, it was unfair, as the two fed off each other's cynicism. Their individual hate fused together, hearkening dark, looping discussions inside a toxic bubble. They fantasized about becoming crime bosses, Of ruling over an underworld, and this morphed into a deadly idea of committing a murder to see how it would feel. Sadly, as Mike and Fred wallowed in freakish murder plots, Mike's family was still drowning in grief and were oblivious. Fred's parents were estranged and they were divorced, with friction boiling over at his house. Fred's mom worked hard to provide for Fred and his brothers and she assumed Fred was being a responsible teenager. Both Mike and Fred fell off their parental radars, and their sordid homicidal discussions solidified into the plan. The teens were quite serious about becoming crime lords, taking over the underbelly of Franklin, Virginia. Now there is quite the aspiration. They would control drugs, weapons, they'd extort others to expand their reputations. They'd acquire minions who would recruit others, who they referred to as the boys, who would use force and fear to compel cooperation from others. And of course, most importantly, they'd find a target, someone to kill. Many of these conversations were held by drinking and drugging, their hate reinforcing the others. They began debating how to pick a target. Anyone who crossed them. Anyone who disagreed with them was given a black mark by the duo on the developing mental fit list. So, wait, who is this guy, Fred? All right, we talked a little bit about his family, but he is popular and he is street wise. Fred Green's dad was a prison warden. His son was disciplined with a strong work ethic, the drum major for Franklin High School's Bronco Band. Fred was the leader who played soccer as well and was voted most spirited by his class. Mike existed on the second ring of popularity, a more quiet type, but Fred was popular. Fred's logic and organizational skills would merge with Mike, creating a secret, deadly outcome. The boys would chew over possible scenarios where they would execute a target. And I have to ponder their choice of wording, very antiseptic about killing. They didn't say they were killing a person, it was always a target. They also considered every possibility for what could go wrong, how they would deal with evidence, and how they would ensure that they would not get caught. Quote, The intense planning was way above what you'd expect from teenage boys. In this time before graphic video games and crime scene type television shows, their consideration was impressive. End quote. Before his senior year began, the plan became more solid, more real. A field located between the S.P. Morton Middle School, where construction was taking place, would be the death zone. Not located in Franklin's best area, local gunshots would cover up their activities. They'd steal a tarp from the construction site and use it to conceal the body. Confidence growing, they rehearsed the plan time and time again. Now, they just needed the target. Oof. Mike and Fred began sorting their peers into two groups. Recruitables or Opposition. The kill list was developed from the Opposition group. They identified anyone who would bleep on their radar in a negative fashion. A joke on wrong that offended. On the kill list. A wink at a girl one of them liked. On the kill list. Some were removed from the list if a transgression ceased or a sincere apology was forthcoming. But the longer you were on the kill list, the more likely it was that you'd be the target. They analyzed target accessibility. Could X be convinced to go to the selected location? Did X carry weapons? Would the timing work out with X? This is utterly chilling that they were thinking this way, this calculated, this detail. Holy shit. Now, keep in mind, no one has any idea that this list exists. And Karen and Ann tell us their over-the-top first choice for a target was someone in law enforcement. Quote, Killing an officer of the law would be the cream de la creme of murders and would give them the street credibility they deserve. End quote. But Mike and Fred let this go. Officers were armed, and that risk was just too concerning. But much debate ensued over who was on the hit list, and before long, they identified a target. I feel sick thinking about what's coming. The chosen night arrived, and it was time to enact the plan. Filling his car up with gas, Mike had a pit in his stomach, mentally reviewing the checklist. Had they neglected something? Blue tarp? Check. Shovels in the trunk? Check. Gun loaded? Check. It was a three hundred fifty seven Magnum that Fred had lifted from his girlfriend, Heather Thornton's home. Heather had actually once been on the hit list. Yeah, yeah, his girlfriend. No one was spared lethal scrutiny. They scoped out dumpsters to deposit evidence. Afterwards, they'd need to be quick and efficient. Doubt crept into Mike's thoughts. Was there time to shelve this whole thing? Part of him did not want to go through with this. So don't, I'm yelling in my head, knowing it's a complete waste of bandwidth and chiding myself, but nevertheless, I couldn't help it. Focusing on the mission now, as opposed to the plan, the mission was establishing status as gangsters. Well, the difficulty was, everyone would have to know your murderers, which might blow that whole concealed-the-crime thing. But confident that they had devised an ungodly awful but perfect plan, it was go-time to enact it. This lethal duo silently drove to the designated spot between the two schools. The target arrived immediately after they did, under the pretense of working out their differences. They began with idle chit-chat, and Mike began to think that it wasn't going to happen. Then there was a loud clank by the school. Maybe someone was there, or maybe it was a cat. When Mike went to check out the noise, he really hoped he'd find someone, and the plan would end here and now. But he couldn't walk away. He'd never leave Fred like that. He was mobster material, he was. Left alone, Fred thought about shooting the target himself, but he couldn't rob his buddy of the glory of being part of it. Sharing the experience was critical. Returning, Mike found no one, and they began listening to some music. Mike whispered to Fred, quote, If we're going to do this, do it now so we can get out of here. At first, Fred thought Mike indicated he wanted to leave. And then he realized his friend had given him the green light. Let's do this, end quote. Mike's thoughts were jumbled, the mood darkening. Quote, Mike wanted to escape the shifting mood and the plan. The target sensed something heavy was getting ready to happen. Like maybe he'd made a mistake by showing up alone. He was in over his head. He mentioned that perhaps they could negotiate a deal for weekly payments, end quote. But Fred responded that it was too late, taunting that it was a spooky night and anything can happen out here, as he cocked and uncocked the gun. Click, click, click. February 24th, 1990. Dolores and James Whitley reported their son, Trent, missing. He hadn't come home the night before, and his friends hadn't seen him that night either. A good son, a good kid. He always checked in if he made plans to stay out after curfew. Raymond Trent Whitley, a Gemini, was born June nineteenth, 1972. He was the youngest of four brothers. An outgoing child who bubbled over with enthusiasm. He was also fearless. Every parent has one of those stories about their kid as a toddler. Well, at age two, mom, Dolores, was doing housework and Dad was in the garage doing chores. Trent was restless and wanted to go outside. Calling to her husband to watch Trent, out the toddler went. Only Dad hadn't heard Mom. Later going to check on Trent, neither knew where he had wandered off to, and the fence's gate was open. Frantic, they ran around the neighborhood looking for their son. The older brothers deployed to search, while their parents began driving around, eyes darting. Ultimately, the police brought Trent back, who was beaming after having quite the adventure, and his relieved parents, of course, were limp with worried exhaustion, but joy that he was home safe and sound. This was the beginning of Trent Whitley's love for the outdoors, which remained all his life. Boating, water skiing, hunting, he did it all with zeal. At 17, he was granted a waiver by the local hunt club a very big deal in a southern county where deer season was considered a national holiday. Not into athletics, Trent was in the band and was well-liked having many, many friends. Trent began dating sophomore Michelle, but they had broken up two weeks before Trent vanished. Michelle said that Trent explained that he was a senior and he needed his freedom. Dolores Whitley did not think this was a matter of rejection or young love gone awry. Trent was upbeat, excited for graduation, dancing around joyfully in his cap and gown. While he wasn't sure what he wanted to do after graduation, he was working part-time at a sod farm. Michelle said he planned to take a year off and then attend an out-of-state college. He was really looking forward to beginning life. Trent wasn't perfect. But he was a good kid, talented, social, happy, and recently sporting a sparse but cool mustache. Our authors ask quote, How does a vivacious, well liked small town boy get caught on the kill list of two wannabe mobster classmates? End quote. Back in February 1990, chasing the dream of becoming real life good fellas. Fred tried to pressure Trent Whitley into paying $10 a week for protection. Trent thought this was silly, never giving the idea a moment's real consideration. A few more times, Fred demanded the money, with Trent flippantly responding with a chuckle, quote, I don't owe you any money and I don't need your protection, end quote. Completely missing all of this. Trent lost that this was actually the most significant conversation of his young life. Infuriated, Fred raged, quote, "Who does this kid think he's talking to?" End quote. Fred found Mike and launched into a tirade in front of other classmates and possibly even a teacher, declaring that he was going to kill Trent Whitley, whose name was put on the top of the hit list. When Trent went missing ten days later. No one reported this declaration of intent. No one. February 23, 1990 was a normal Friday in Franklin, with people looking forward to the weekend. Trent left school, and he headed to his part-time job. After work, he went home, showered, and joined the family for dinner. Trent then left to go hang out with friends, his mom reminded him to wear a coat, because it was cold. Quote, and then he was gone. No more hellos, no more goodbyes. End quote. It was the next morning when Dolores realized Trent hadn't come home. bed empty, still made up. She found Trent's car, a nineteen eighty four Nissan Maxima, parked across the street from their home, window open. But wait, it had rained the night before, and the Nissan's key was in the ignition. Trent's coat was tossed across the back seat. Dolores was filled with dread, knowing something was terribly wrong. She called the police, who towed the car to the impound lot, with the windows still open, and an investigator was assigned to the case. But, of course, he was on vacation for two more weeks. You really can't make this stuff up, murder bookies. It's really painful. On return from his time off, the detective did launch into an investigation, ordering the car to be forensically examined, with nothing of substance coming to light. Hundreds of classmates were interviewed, and a tip line was set up for information. Thousands of tips were vetted, and eventually a $5,000 reward was offered. What became known throughout Franklin? That night, Trent planned to meet three friends and go to a party. Interviewing one of his friends, he gave many details and agreed to take a polygraph. A second boy dodged going to the police station, missing his appointment. Picked up at his job, he was given a free ride to the police station in the back of the patrol car. He did not pass the polygraph, but this was probably due to his level of anxiety. The third boy heard about the interviews at the police station and lawyered up, never taking a polygraph. And remember, that is his right. It is not an admission of guilt. In spite of some reluctance here, their three stories never wavered. They had plans with Trent to go to a party. Trent never showed up. But this trio would remain suspects for a long time, with no one even glancing at Fred or Mike. The town rumor mill would spin out conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory. Some speculating Trent's disappearance was related to two women found dead on Colonial Parkway, in October, 1986, Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski, and that this meant a serial killer was on the loose. Bang! <clears throat> Mike jerked around as the target's body hit the floor with a thud. Holy shit, the plan was in motion. The realization slammed into his consciousness. Fred spoke calmly, quote, We came here to do a job. Let's finish it. Mike began to help as self-preservation kicked in. Neither pondered the reality that they'd taken a 17-year-old boy's life, nor the inevitable, frantic, grief-stricken response of parents, family, and friends to his loss. He'd been the target. He fell for their ruse. He rejected paying the protection money. The next part of the plan demanded they erase evidence and clean up. Having rehearsed this in their minds, they acted on autopilot. But the plan hit a snag. Moving the body into Mike's trunk was much more difficult than imagined. Tarp on the ground, they lugged the body onto it, missing the large pool of blood oozing into pieces of flesh scattered all over the ground. Folding over the tarp, it took multiple attempts to move heavy load into the trunk as they continued to depersonalize the victim as mere weight, Mike still drove his transparent car, coping best he could with the wave of blood sloshing in the trunk. Imagery he was conjuring in his mind. Fred drove the target's car, window down, to keep himself focused. They took separate routes back to town so as not to be seen together. The plan dictated they dump the car in Meadow Lane, which was known for drug deals which they hoped might nudge suspicions of what had occurred in that direction. Fred methodically wiped fingerprints from the target's vehicle as Mike pulled into the meeting place, parking in a dark corner. Silent as the grave, Mike was screaming in his mind, quote, Why had he agreed to participate in such a vile deed? How did it get this far? Why didn't anyone stop us? End quote. With the window left down, Fred jumped into Mike's car, silent and smiling. Hearts stopped for a second when Fred's girlfriend drove by, but she failed to see them. As mind fog began to clear, Mike tried to focus, suddenly recognizing that he was pulling off the main road and heading towards his family's farm. Had he driven here? Then, Fred was handling him a shovel. One of the two they dropped off up at the farm, anticipating the need to dig the grave. Going to the pre-selected designated spot they'd picked to bury the target, it was just yards from the cabin. Digging, Fred shoveled, but Mike foundered. He recognized he was in shock, quasi-frozen in place. But this was a two-man job, and he couldn't fail now. But he was failing. Mike just couldn't manage to dig. Fred proposed a shallower grave. Then they could come back on Sunday to dig deeper. Compromise accepted, with Mike still sluggish, Fred chided him about having to do everything himself as they moved the body into the shallow ditch where they stuck the tarp tightly around it. In the darkness, they gathered branches, leaves, limbs, covering the ground so no one would notice the disturbed dirt. Following the planned schedule, they drove back to town to establish alibis. Quote, Fred excitedly asked if Mike was aware of their power. Mike guessed aloud that their power came from having gone through with it, sticking to the plan. Fred corrected him. They'd gain power by possessing sole knowledge of the homicide. End quote. Mike had convinced himself that if they implemented the plan, He wasn't going to hell because there was no God. No God, no hell. Now, in the aftermath, he thought that God knew, God saw what they'd done, and Mike was going to hell. He dropped Fred off at his home, and Fred got out thinking, Mike, pull it together. Do I need to formulate a new plan? And the two parted that night. Complying with the next steps of the plan, Mike went to establish his alibi with the drunken girls. Back home, he collapsed in bed, not feeling like a powerful mob boss. This wasn't all what he expected. His mind rolled over images of the tarp, uncooperative body parts, his shooed foot flopping out, matted hair, chunks of brain. Saturday came and Mike hoped that basketball practice would distract him. But then he recalled Trent wearing a hat and eyeglasses, which he didn't remember seeing in the ditch. Anxiety spiked, had they missed some evidence. He called Fred, implicitly trusting that he would take care of this. Well, once begun, practice was going fairly well. Muscle memory guided him over drills. And when one teammate ran past him, Mike could smell the alcohol stench emitted from him triggering a memory from that night and he began to wretch. quote he didn't know it takes 30 seconds for alcohol to reach the brain once it's consumed if the victim consumed half a beer before they met it would have moved his brain by his bloodstream and mixed in with the spatter gushing from the gunshot wound end quote as fred walked into the gym Donning the very hat and glasses Mike was concerned about with Mike nearly passing out. How dare him! If he survived practice, Mike knew he was going to go insane. I want to pause here a second to reflect on a life taken for no good reason, such a senseless death. It is tragic and horrifying. So unfair. So infuriating, such a loss. I also want to point out that Mike is not a psychopath. He is feeling intense remorse, regret, and guilt, sharp guilt. Fred, on the other hand, he is a psychopath in my humble opinion. He is jubilant. He is triumphant at their achievement. He is feeling powerful. He is steady on their feet and overconfident. He's walking into a crowded gym with the victim's hat and glasses and finding it funny. Reading this, my stomach lurched. And as always, I encourage you to read the book for yourselves. There's just so much more. Practice finally ended, but there was another jolt. Trent's girlfriend came over to Mike and Fred, honestly asking if they'd seen him last night as Trent had mentioned seeing them around 8 p.m. Dress rehearsal over, Mike repeated the story that they had gone over hundreds of times. Yes, Trent intended to meet them at the community college to buy them some alcohol because he had a fake ID. They'd waited 15 minutes, and he'd never shown up. He never called either, and she totally believed him, and a shard of sanity re-rooted in Mike. He might survive this yet. Sunday came. It was time to move the body and dig a deeper grave back by the big oak tree in the front yard of the cabin. It took four hours to dig the four foot grave, which was not far from the lake. It's much quicker on TV shows, isn't it? Next came moving the body, with Mike envisioning Trent reaching up from beyond, grabbing him as icy fear welled up. But he feared, looking weak in front of Fred, so he held it together. Fred was on a mission to get this job done, but both were clumsy trying to move the dead weight. And then, Fred looted the body, taking $200 out of Trent's wallet and tossing it back onto the corpse. Really? I'm not sure that would have even crossed my mind, but like I said, he's probably a psychopath. Removing the tarp, they maneuvered the body where it would rest for years the morbid task completed. In the next weeks, months, years, the rumor mill went wild through Franklin. Had Trent met with trouble and taken off? Had this been some kind of gang kidnapping? Well, drugs certainly had to be involved. Family and friends held vigils for Trent, his parents giving interviews to the media, local, and state. They were heartsick with worry over what happened to their precious son. Police investigated leads, but nothing solidified. People all over Virginia and the surrounding states reported seeing Trent, and the police duly interviewed all of them, coming up with nothing. In June, the class of 1990 graduated from Franklin High School without Trent Whitley. With a distinct heartache, his family watched Trent's cap and gown go unused, as other graduates started heading off to college and elsewhere pursuing their futures. Trent had been so excited about graduating too. As this post-graduation exodus occurred, the number of witnesses shrunk exponentially. For the next two years, the Whitleys spoke to reporters again, hoping that someone out there would speak up. Dolores Whitley fervently believed that this was the case. No one suspected that it was a high school drum major, Fred, and the basketball player, Mike, who held all the answers. Eventually, the Whitleys came to accept that their beloved son and brother would not be coming home. As the months passed, some of Trent's closest friends would come over and spend time with the family, showing their support, talking about Trent and who he was. The lead investigator kept in touch too And until today, that bond remains strong. I have to point out that Karen and Anne are my kind of weird. And that is a compliment. And being weird is something that they write about. So I'm not talking hand over mic. In families that don't really do true crime, being obsessed enough to create a podcast marks you as a bit of a weirdo. Maybe an enigma. They began listening to true crime podcasts in 2018. From listening, from discussing, their concept for the sugar-coated murder podcast developed, combining their love of baking, which goes hand-in-hand with the case they present. Well, the next thing they knew, they were buying a $20 microphone on Amazon and dove into murder cases, publishing their podcast, which, quote, has the vibe of Paula Dean meets Dateline, end quote. And I totally agree with that. Baking comfort goodies coupled with their dark humor, their storytelling is pithy and sprinkled with some salty language and heartfelt apologies to their mom for letting an F bomb drop. So I do recommend the Sugar Coated Murder podcast if you haven't guessed. Now, these ladies are my spirit animals who have a sincere devotion to accuracy. While endeavoring to represent victims in cases where they often become a footnote in a legal document from a trial. Now, it can be challenging to seek out information about victims. I know this myself. Focusing on their hometown, Karen and Anne can access insider information, enhanced further by their innate understanding of the dynamics in Franklin, which is priceless. But nevertheless, it can inadvertently ruffle important feathers. As a podcaster, I receive emails from listeners, and I get this sweet surge of adrenaline because someone cared enough to send a comment. Yay or nay, they are always welcome. Well, the same is true for Karen and Ann. And on September 21st, 2022, they found an email in their inbox with the subject, Your Podcast Covered My Case, and it was from a murderer. All right, now that will give you pause. Was this a good development? the sugar-coated murder podcast making it into the prison population? Or should they be terrified that a killer had noticed them? All right, I've asked myself that question a few times as well, but I have not received correspondence from a killer. Not yet anyway. So keep that in mind as the story progresses, that their podcast was very much responsible for bringing about this book. And this is where I will pause our story, click, click, click. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. In two weeks, we'll listen to part two, The Guilty Mind, for the continuation. The truth will come out, however painfully, and Trent Whitley will be remembered as far more than a murder victim. And my next book, thank you Patreon members for helping, is Frozen in Fear, The True Story of Surviving Shadows of Death by Jane Carson Sandler. I met Jane at CrimeCon three or four times at this point, and she is a lovely, gracious, strong woman and a survivor who would eventually testify against her rapist-turned-serial killer, Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. I began this podcast with Michelle McNamara's All Be Gone in the Dark, literally episodes one and two, on his reign of terror. It's time to do a story on a survivor and the aftermath. I've also read She Survived-Jane by M. William Phillips and Jane Carson Sandler. I try to read as many books on a particular true crime case as I can. Her story ripped out my heart while it renewed my spirit. Who knew that both of these things can be happening simultaneously? Now, please take a few minutes to leave an awesome review and share your thoughts with me at at com on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or join Patreon for $4 a month and help me pick out our next books and talk true crime. Holiday shopping is in full swing and new winter designs are out on Spreadshop, so get your merch. Links are on my blog at www.MurderShelfBookClub.com with sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and wine pairing, too. Always trust your gut and lock your doors and windows. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna. And lyrics by Otto Harbach.